Well, good morning, Harvest. How are we? It's great to be with you. Uh, my name is Jamie. I have the privilege of serving on the pastoral staff here at Harvest Church. And excited this morning because we're starting a new series in the book of 2 Timothy. So if you have a copy of God's Word, or however you would access that this morning, I invite you to meet me there in 2 Timothy chapter 1. And this is a great next step uh, coming off the heels of the, the three-week series Kenan just finished up that landed with us as a corporate people of God uh, being called to make disciples. And so our understanding is at this point it should be that if you are a Christian, Christ's call to make disciples applies to you. It's not some special calling for a special sect or special group of people that we're all called by Jesus to make disciples. Now, outside of Jesus and the 12, Paul's relationship with Timothy is maybe the New Testament example of discipleship. And so I'm excited over these next several weeks that we'll be walking through this book to see how Paul and Timothy's relationship work together and what Paul exhorted Timothy, who is his spiritual son in the faith, what he exhorted him towards. So if you have a copy of God's Word, 2 Timothy chapter 1, this morning we'll be in verses 1 and 2. Could you please stand for the reading of God's Word? It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, 2 Timothy 1, verse 1 and 2, those are the very words of God. Would you pray with me? God, we do thank you for your word. We proclaim now uh, to you that your word is above us, that it's true, that it's authoritative, and where we disagree with you, God, it necessarily makes us wrong. So we pray now in the power and mercy of your spirit that you would cut us, that our sin and greed and self-centeredness and prejudices, whatever it may be, would bleed out of us, that we would leave looking more like Christ. And we're trusting for your spirit to move to even use me. In Christ's wonderful name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. In the summer of 2008, I, I found myself standing in the very place that these words were written. And so if you ever are, are, are privileged enough or lucky enough to be able to go to Rome, uh, uh, they know with some accuracy where Paul was imprisoned as he wrote this letter to Timothy. And so it's a pretty unassuming place. Uh, there's these steps that go down beside one of the buildings there. And you walk in, and it's a cold, dark room, a stone ceiling, stone floors, stone, stone walls. No light gets in. And as you're in that room, you can make a left and then another left, and you wind down these, these steps to what's essentially the basement. It's the hole in the floor where Paul would have stayed. It is dark. It is cold, it is wet, and it is so small that I could not stand. I had to do this posture the whole time I was in there because I could not stand up straight. It was surreal. You're, you're standing in the place that the Apostle Paul drew his last breaths and where he wrote his last words. And as I've been reflecting upon that, this, this week, I, I can't help but think that that setting and that time was, oh, was unbelievably lonely for him. And if you think about it, here he is at the end of his life, sitting, he can't stand up straight, chained, body aching from the years where he'd been beaten and stoned, bones broken, left to heal on their own. 
And he's sitting there after going through years, as he would tell us, that he'd been shipwrecked, he had been hungry, he had slept in the freezing cold, he had been exposed to extreme heat. We know in the letter to Galatians, his eyesight was failing him. So, so he wasn't healthy. So hurting, physically broken, not healthy, chained, freedom to move about, taken away after a life of serving Christ. And, and Paul did not get from God the good life. His coming to Christ did not result in comfort, safety, health, and wealth. Here we have the greatest figure of the early church sitting in pain, alone, chained, damp, cold, and hungry, writing his last words to who I would argue is his best friend. And as we read through this letter, never once do we get a word of regret and never once do we get a word of self-pity. Paul's circumstances do not matter to him because he counts everything as rubbish and trash compared to what Christ called him to do. And he writes this letter to Timothy. Right, and today we're in the introduction and one risk we run at reading New Testament letters is, is to kind of get the feeling that, that you've read one introduction, you've read them all. And so you can be guilty like me at times to maybe gloss over them or move quickly through them. And I'm hoping that in God's kindness to us this morning, we'll, we'll see why not to do that. Okay, so Paul begins his letter with this. Writing to him, he says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, it's important for us to stop there and note that apostle is not originally a Christian term. It's a cultural term. If we would give it its most simplistic definition, we would just say it's a messenger. It's a messenger, but officially, formally, an apostle was someone that carried the, or that was sent by the king, who had the words of the king, and those words held the authority of the king. So when Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ, here's what he's saying. I am sent by King Jesus with the words of the king, and those words hold the authority of the king. Now, I would hold that we don't today have the apostolic office still. Someone functioning as an apostle as Paul did. One of the requirements biblically is you had to see the resurrected Christ. But though we may not fill the office of an apostle, we all bear the message and responsibility of the apostolic call. Which means if you are a Christian, if you've repented of your sins and called upon the name of Christ, here's what is necessarily true of you and me. We are sent by the king with the words of the king, and those words have the authority of the king, and that's the scriptures. Okay, so, so Paul, an apostle of Christ, isn't something that just applies to him. It's something by deep biblical implication that, that, that is massive for us. We as Christians are a sent people, sent into our families, sent into our neighborhoods, sent into our workplaces, sent into all nations. We are a sent people carrying something. What? The words of the king. And those words have the authority of the king because they're from God. And so Paul says, I'm an apostle of Christ. Sent by the king, words of the king the authority of the king. Look what else he says in introducing himself. He says, I'm an apostle by the will of God. It's a massive statement. 
right? And, and honestly, in, in pastoral ministry, which I haven't been in for a long time, but a little while, one of the recurring conversations people want to have with me as a pastor is this, is I just want to know God's will for my life. I just want to know God's will for my life. I want to know God's will for, for, for my life. And, and that's a good question. Uh, but, but usually if we were to, to, to interpret that a little bit, here's what's really being asked. I want to know uh, who I'm supposed to date, who I'm supposed to marry, what job I'm supposed to take, what house am I supposed to buy, how many kids does God want me to have, where am I supposed to live, all of these things. Good questions to ask God, but not ultimate questions. See, when the Bible talks about the will of God, it's not actually seeking to address those things. Okay, so I've got good news for you this morning. If you've ever wondered what the will of God for your life is, we're going to answer it. And you never have to ask the question again. Okay, because the will of God, right? And the idea of the will of God, it, 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 it can be uh, talked about this way. I mean, the desire of God. What are the desires of God for you and for me as his people? Well, those are the same. Regardless of our vocation or location, holy lives, to call upon the name of Jesus, to seek his glory and honor, to be a holy people, to be a loving people, to live out Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 by the power of the Spirit in the best way we're able to. And we can add things to that list. It's to know God through his words, to pursue him in prayer. That is the will of God for us, is to serve him, to love him, to love others. And when the Bible talks about the will of God, it's talking in these big, huge categories that are equally applicable to all of us. And so here's what Paul's saying. This call that was on me, this, this idea that I'm sent by the king with the words of the king, with the authority of the king, all of that lined up with God's desire for my life. And the same is true for us. God desires for us to step into this disciple-making call of being sent by the king with the words of the king and the authority of the king. But look what else he says. He says, not only that, not only am I an apostle, not only does that line up with God's desire, but he says this, it's according to the promise of the life that is in Christ. Now, it's true that, that, that when we are uh, converted or, 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 or rebirthed to new creations, which is, which is God's work by grace in our lives, that in that moment that we, are, uh, we have new life, we taste it. And Paul has that in mind to some degree, but ultimately here he's actually looking to the life that has not yet begun in its fullest manifestation. So we taste being new creations now. We, we are brand new, uh, completely who God made us to be once we see Jesus face to face. And so what God has in mind here, or what Paul has in mind here, is he's saying, I have done everything. I have, have, have fulfilled the apostolic call. I've tried to live out God's desires for my life. I've done all of that with one singular filter in my mind, and that is there is a promised fullness of life that is guaranteed for me, and where I am headed determines what I do right now. See, Paul had this idea that there is a promise of fullness of life, this full manifestation. We've tasted it now, but it's coming in its fullness. He says, that's guaranteed for me. And by knowing where he was headed, it gave him great clarity on how to live while he was here. It is the guaranteed future destination that is the impetus for his present faithfulness. So Paul says, I am living life with a singular filter on. And that filter is, I'm headed somewhere. And never is that more crystal clear to him than as he's sitting chained, waiting to die.
I'll try my best to, to illustrate it uh, like this. So, so summer of, I think, 2003 or four, uh, it, it was one of those. Uh, I was working at a Christian camp in Branson, uh, Missouri, which Branson's a Christian Las Vegas. And so we were there, and I was, we were gonna load up and I was there with three of my closest friends. All those guys were in my wedding. We were, we were, we were driving to, to begin a three-week trip to the western part of the United States. Right? And destination number one was we were going to drive from Branson to the Grand Canyon. It's a 24-hour drive. There were four of us, six-hour shifts. Even Auburn grads could do that. And so we're going to take, uh, we're gonna take uh, rotations. So we're almost there. We've got you know, a couple hours left. And we land at a place we didn't have any familiarity with, Flagstaff, Arizona. It's a Flagstaff's in northern Arizona. Uh, and it's perfect. It was green. It was lush. It was clean. had a high median income. We start talking to the locals. They tell us that we get three perfect months of every season. And we're sitting there as single dudes having lunch. The only responsibility on our plates is stay alive. There's nothing else holding us to anywhere. And so we sit there and start to wonder, we could just move here. We could just stop our trip. We have enough clothes. We've been working all summer. Uh, We've got some money. We could stay. And we're sitting there pondering, enamored with this place. And we quickly came to the realization we couldn't stay where we were because there was a future destination that had already been mapped out. Where we were headed determined how we interacted while we were there. Now, to take that by way of analogy, if we take this life as Flagstaff, right? everything we taste, touch, see, and feel is not everything that there is. And so if we get enamored with what just this world has to offer, so you name whatever it is, career, money, sex, power, relationships, you name it. If we become enamored with that, we will be unable to live out the will of God faithfully because we forget where we're headed. And Paul says you can't live faithfully in the present unless you know where you're headed in the future. Okay, so we couldn't stay in Flagstaff because we had somewhere else to be. And we were created ultimately for an existence that has not yet come in its fullest manifestation. But we are headed there. And that is the filter and mindset Paul lived life through. And that's what he's ushering us, pushing us, exhorting us to live towards as well. So he's an apostle by the will of God, and all this is according to, it's in line with the promise of life that is to come. He's saying, where I'm headed determines what I do. 2 Timothy, verse 2. 2 Timothy, my beloved child. It's my favorite line in our text this morning, maybe in the book. 2 Timothy, my beloved child. Paul could have written anything he wanted to there, it's his introduction. He's the one dying. And he's writing to what I would argue with, uh, is his closest and best friend. In fact, if you go back to 1 Timothy, don't, but if you do, he starts a letter differently. He says, Timothy, my true child or, or my genuine child in the faith. Why the change? It's because I think... That staring down death, that Paul is saying, Timothy, in light of everything you've learned from me, when I am gone, 
don't forget I loved you. That's all he said, my beloved child. And Paul says, Timothy, don't forget I loved you. And in that one line, we find the bedrock foundational principle of discipleship relationships. Discipleship is an exercise in love. It is to love someone genuinely, unconditionally, faithfully, to love them. And in that is also a conviction because if that's true, and I think that it is, it removes every single excuse because most of our excuses revolve around time or we feel incompetent or we decide, well, I don't know enough to teach someone else yet. Paul did not say, Timothy, my beloved teacher. He says, Timothy, my beloved son. He didn't say, Timothy, uh, communicator extraordinaire. He says, my beloved son. All of us can love someone. And that's where discipleship starts. So we actually can't say, I'm not going to engage in disciple-making relationships because we don't know enough because that's not actually a biblical qualification. But we all can love. We can sit down across from someone and learn about their life and pray for them and stand beside them and encourage them and love them. And as we're doing that, we can grow in our knowledge of the Scriptures together. Paul says it's love. Timothy, I love you. That was the foundational operating principle of their relationship. And it's the same for us in disciple making. Okay, so, so if you wait or if I wait for some magical moment where we finally feel like now I know enough, I can really do some, some good or really pour into someone, you're never going to reach that place. But you can today love someone continually faithfully, unconditionally by the grace of God and his mercy. We can do that and we can step in to the call Kenan gave us last week to make disciples. So Paul, ha having everything in front of him as a choice to address Timothy says, my beloved child. Okay, so before we keep going, do a little background work. I want you to see uh, this relationship unfold because by the time we get 2 Timothy, most likely they've had a 13 to 15 year relationship. They've known each other for a long time. And for all those 13 to 15 years, either physically Timothy was right by Paul's side or as Paul would write in another letter, though I'm absent uh, from you writing to the, to, to the church, or though I'm absent to you in, in body, I'm present with you in spirit. So, so either way, they were linked up and synced for the entire 13 or 15 years, depending on how we date the book. Okay, now that relationship began, and don't flip there, you can just, just write down, that relationship begins, I believe, in Acts chapter 14. Because so Acts 14, Paul's in the area of Galatia, and he goes to a city uh, named Lystra. Now here's what happens, Paul goes to Lystra, he starts preaching the gospel, they hate him and stone him. Okay, they believe that he's dead, they literally drag him, put him outside of the city, the next day, Paul gets up and walks back into the city, preaches the gospel again, then leaves and goes to other regions. Now, two chapters later in Acts, Paul returns, Acts 16, and he returns to Lystra, the place where he was stoned, the place where he was believed to be dead. When he gets there, some older men in the church come to him and say, hey, there's this young guy who's a disciple of Christ who loves the Lord and his name's Timothy. You've got to meet him. And I think... Uh, with, with some certainty, at least with some good conjecture, it's not outside of the biblical realms to say, 
Timothy was most likely converted during Paul's previous journey to Lystra. You have Timothy watch this man preach the gospel, get stoned, believed to be dead, be thrown outside of the city, and the next day he walks back in and keeps proclaiming the same message. And I think that impressed this young guy. He knew there was something real in that comes to faith. By the time Paul returns, Paul meets him, and Paul very quickly says, Timothy, you're coming with me. And from that point on, their relationship is inseparable, and it begins. It begins. And, and so I've thought about that and wondered, well, why? Paul has proven to us he won't just take anybody. So if you read Acts 13, he actually kicks John Mark off the trip. Okay, so Paul's not just like this cuddly guy that says, sure, anybody come along. He's not, he's not just taking anyone. So why Timothy? Why Timothy? I think we get the answer to that in Philippians chapter 2. I'm just going to read it for you this morning. But Philippians 2 is the clearest, I think, biblical insight into what made Timothy so precious to Paul. Right, so Philippians 2, oh, here's what's fascinating, okay, a little, little uh, sidetrack. In 2 Timothy, Paul's about to die, and at the end of the letter, he's going to say, Timothy, come to me as quickly as possible, because before I go, I want to see you. In Philippians, Paul's also in prison, but he doesn't know if he's going to die or not, and he doesn't want Timothy to leave until he finds out. All right, so, so Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 says this. I hope in the Lord, to, or right into the church at Philippi, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Well, why send Timothy? Here's what he says, verse 20. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. Here's what Paul says. I'm in prison. I don't know if I'm going to die yet or not. Timothy is with me, and I, I'm going to send him to you, but not quite yet. Why would I pick him? Because in these few lines, what Paul just told us is, Timothy is the godliest person I know. Anyone else I may send you would be concerned about themselves over you. But if I send Timothy, there's no one more humble no one more servant-minded, no one more selfless. I couldn't send you anyone that will serve and care for you like he would. I think Timothy, in Paul's mind, may be the godliest person he knows. But speaking to the depth and affection in their relationship, look what he says in verse, uh, or, or the second uh, part of 22 says, he has, as a son with a father, serve me in the gospel. Now, it's a side point for another sermon. Thankful to Vincent for drawing this insight out for me this week. Uh, 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 this father-son relationship with Paul and Timothy is huge. We get one line about Timothy's dad in all scripture and that he was Greek. We get Timothy's spiritual lineage coming through his mother and grandmother. And so you can imagine, here's this young guy. He comes to faith and he doesn't have a man. He doesn't have a father to show him how to be a man of God. Paul steps into that gap. There are huge discipleship implications there. But Paul steps into that gap and says, if you'll come with me and be my spiritual son, I'll be a father to you. So he says, he served me as a son would a father. And, and look at verse 23. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. That's the phrase where Paul's saying, I'm waiting to find out if Rome's going to kill me or not. And as soon as I know, I'll send him. Why? Because if Paul's going to die, he wants a few more minutes 
with a spiritual son and best friend. Okay, so that's some insight into the character and person of Timothy. But to be honest with you, I find Timothy to be a highly unlikely character to be the recipient of this message. Because as godly as he is, he doesn't actually check any impressive boxes. In fact, the other things we learn about Timothy in the scripture, it's kind of threefold. One, Paul tells us that Timothy is young. Okay, now that resonates with me. Not because I am, but because the last time I preached, somebody asked if I was a member of the youth ministry. <laughs> Think about that. Didn't even assume I was a leader. Okay, so I'm 34. I have a beautiful, wonderful wife. I have two children and one on the way. I'm a pretty average 34-year-old, but if I was 17, I'd be in the Hall of Fame. So if you want me to be a youth ministry member, that's fine. Okay, so Timothy is young. He's young. That's not commendation in this culture to be young. That's associated with being uh, 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 unlearned, unwise. So he's young. Here's what else we learn about Timothy, that he's sickly. He's always sick. In fact, Paul would write in 1 Timothy, Timothy, you need to drink some wine for your frequent ailments. He wasn't healthy. He was a sickly guy, a frail guy. So he's young, he's frail, and what a lot of scholars believe, his health problems were actually related to this third characteristic, and that is we learn Timothy is really fearful. Paul has to exhort him all the time, don't be afraid. You're not given to a spirit of fear. Don't be timid. Paul's always exhorting him, fan, and, fan uh, into flame the gift that God has given you. Timothy, don't forget the gift that came to you through the laying on of hands. He's having to push this guy because Timothy is so fearful. So we have this man who is young, sickly, and fearful. Timothy is not very externally impressive. In fact, I can say with a lot of certainty, Timothy, the man Paul picked to pastor the church in Ephesus, wouldn't even get past the first round of interviews in American churches in 2017. Why? Because we're so enamored with giftedness that Timothy's godliness doesn't impress us. In fact, if you can wow us with your communication ability and we can sense this external gifting, if there's a little flash to what you're able to serve up, we will keep coming back. But if you're boring and godly, I've got 10 other churches I can pick from. But Paul didn't choose like that. And praise God, God doesn't choose like that. Because Timothy is unbelievably godly, but he doesn't have a lot of the external giftings. And the things that our culture, both inside and outside the church, would have elevated, Timothy wouldn't have checked many of the boxes. And this is Paul's guy in Ephesus. Tracy, Timothy's a pretty unlikely character to be the recipient of this letter, but, but not more unlikely than for any of us to be called children of God. Because there's not much impressive about us either, externally or internally. We didn't bring anything to the table to God. God isn't lucky to have me on his team. In fact, the really unlikely child in all of this is me. 
Why? Like everyone else, I'm born in sin, naturally rebellious against God. Except in the South, you can be naturally rebellious by being really good. Okay, none of us were born into relationships with God. God had to, by his grace and mercy, shatter this veil that laid over our hearts that we could see the work of Christ for us. It's only by his grace that we are saved, amen? And that was unlikely for all of us. And if you don't think it was unlikely for you, your sin is self-righteousness. I love what Tim Keller says, is that not only do we have to repent of everything we did wrong, but we need to repent for everything we did right, because we didn't do it for the right reasons. Okay, so here Paul is saying, Timothy's my guy because he's godly, not because he has the external giftings that even Paul's culture would have found most appealing. Okay, so my beloved child, Timothy, my unlikely spiritual son who is pastoring in Ephesus, what does Paul say to him? He says this. He says, grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, mercy, and peace. And and I think we can, in a relational sense, apply those things along these lines that Paul is saying, hey, grace for the trials, mercy for the failures, peace for the doubts. Grace for the trials, Mercy for the failures, peace for the doubts. You can, in the first two verses of this book, we have a remarkable discipleship manual. The, the foundation and bedrock of any of our discipleship relationships is love. What do we do while we're loving someone? We make sure they know that from God, there is grace for the trials. There is mercy amidst failures. And there is peace for the doubts. Grace mercy, and peace. In these first two verses, we can run with discipleship relationships because what that's really doing is calling us to love someone and remind each other of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which all of us that call upon the name of Jesus can do starting today. Starting today. I'm taking a little liberty here. I can't tell you with biblical certainty what I'm about to say happened, I can tell you that historically there's good evidence that what I'm about to say is true. Okay, now another little bit of liberty I'm going to take is this, that I'm going to date, for the purpose of my math, I'm going to date 2 Timothy at 67 AD. That's within a year or two. I'm going to date it at 67 AD because 30 years later, Thirty years later, in Ephesus, there's this gigantic procession of pagan worship, probably to the goddess Artemis, which was a hub. Look, Ephesus was kind of like uh, uh, Harry Potter for the ancient world. There were cults, witches. I mean, it's just like all of that was happening there. And, and so, so, so there's this, there's this huge procession and worship of Artemis. And there's a man... 30 years after this letter, who's standing in the street preaching the gospel and begging people to repent. And they grab him, they beat him, 
And two to three days later, he dies. That's our man. This once fearful, sickly, timid, young guy. 30 years later, something Paul would never know about is standing in the streets of Ephesus proclaiming Christ and he gets killed for it. And you can't help but wonder if going through his mind isn't, I saw Paul do it. I remember Paul's letter when he said, I fought the good fight, I finished the race. I remember Paul teaching me the truth of the scripture that says I have grace and mercy and peace from God. And I can't help but wonder if that courage wasn't drawn in some part from having been with the spiritual father. I hope, hope, just like in some way, 30 years after I'm dead, that I can play some small part in some guy's life so that when the tidal waves of culture are crashing down, he'll be standing in the street preaching the gospel. Now that invitation to pursue that, it's open for all of us. The privilege is open to all of us. But I would say this, it's not just an invitation and it's not just a privilege. Biblically considered, it's a command. Would y'all pray with me? God, I do pray in the time that we had together that you were pleased, that you were honored. I pray that your word uh, was faithfully spoken and that you and the power of your spirit would apply it to us in a thousand different ways that you're able to do so. I repent in my own life for, for not always walking in this line of obedience. But God, if you would be so kind to give us the men and women and make us the men and women that long after we're gone, God, that people would be standing in the streets preaching your name and your love and that you would allow us to play some small part in that. As we see Paul love his beloved son, Timothy, and how Paul's ministry through Timothy multiplied and continued long after Paul was gone. And so that end, we pray and ask for your kindness this morning. In Christ's wonderful name I pray, amen.